invite you to open up the scriptures with me this morning to the last book of God's Word, the book of Revelation, as we continue looking at this portion of uh, the Bible. If you're visiting with us, we've been journeying through uh, the book of Revelation for several weeks now, and uh, we're a little over halfway to the end. And uh, if you're one that likes to know sort of what's coming, we'll be in Revelation this morning and the next uh, three Sundays, and then we're going to break from it. Uh, for a, a series from the book of Hebrews as we approach Easter. And let me encourage you uh, to take one of the devotional guides that you can find on the round table uh, in the foyer when you, when you go today. If you haven't already, this is a, a devotional booklet for the season of Lent that begins this Wednesday, March the 6th, on Ash Wednesday, uh, with some devotionals, uh, daily devotionals that have been written by uh, your church staff. So let me encourage you to take those and, and make use of them in your time with the Lord. But as we prepare to look at our text today, as we prepare to uh, to read and to, to digest and to apply uh, uh, Revelation chapter 12, let me remind you that this portion of God's Word is unlike uh, most of the rest of God's Word. Uh, it's, a, it's a different type of literature. It's known as apocalyptic. In fact, there are portions of it sprinkled in, in some of the uh, books of the Bible, but uh, we don't have anything like it to this length except right here. And so that being said, we, we approach it a bit differently than we approach a New Testament letter. Uh, we approach it a, a bit differently than we approach uh, um, one of Jesus' parables in the Gospels. We approach it a bit differently than we would approach a narrative or a prophecy, although it has elements of many of those. Uh, it's a unique type of literature that was common uh, in the first century among Jews that uses highly symbolic language, otherworldly images to portray central truth, central truths, key truths about God and His plans uh, for His people. And so... Uh, All that to say, often when we read the Bible, we're looking at specific details in order to make sense of the big picture. And we do some of that here, but it's helpful uh, to look at the big picture and then to begin to press into the details. And so that's what we'll do today and in the days ahead. But as you find your place in Revelation chapter 12, and you can find this text on page 998 in the Pew Bible, we invite you to join me uh, standing, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of God's Word. Our sermon text today comes from Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 17. Let's hear the word of the Lord. John writes, he says, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach." 
and from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we come before you this morning desiring to hear from you, Lord, to be led by you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive, that it's living and active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, may it penetrate our lives today. Speak to us, Lord. Guide us, instruct us, shape us by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit through the preaching of your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The church, you may be seated. You know, I, I doubt I have to convince you today or any day that uh, there is much evil in the world. Uh, the world is full of humans and humans are sinners. But even though our sin nature, human sin nature runs uh, deep, some evils seem beyond the mere wickedness of human hearts. The legality of infanticide, which government leaders are now debating. School shootings, tyrannical dictators bent on squelching any notion at all of absolute uh, religious freedom, Hitler's hatred of Jews, Stalin executing roughly one million of his own people, beheadings by ISIS, uh, prosperous engineers of massive human trafficking networks, universities recklessly determined to obliterate any notion of absolute truth. Church, these atrocities suggest an evil enemy bent on absolute destruction. A furious and ferocious monster aiming to eliminate life and twist the truth. According to God's word, he's a liar and a loser portrayed as a crafty serpent and a hungry dragon. Friends, the devil is real. He's more than a figure of our imagination. He's alive and he's active. He is agitated and he's angry. He opposes God and the people of God, but he is no match for God. And though he appears victorious oftentimes in the here and now, his fate is sealed and his future is doomed. You see, though Satan aims to destroy us, Christ has defeated him and will soon deliver us. Bible is clear, though, though Satan aims to destroy us, he aims to destroy the people of God, he aims to destroy us, Christ has defeated him and will soon deliver us. John tells us as much in this text. An incredible portrayal through symbolic story of Christ's victory, uh, Satan's defeat, and the church's triumph. If you were here last week, we looked at the first few verses of this chapter. We were introduced to this story, learning that Christ decisively defeated Satan by ascending and now reigning on high. And now, in the second part of the chapter, I think John essentially retells the same story, uh, adding a few additional emphases. We noted last week that John borrows elements of a popular Greco-Roman myth in order to tell the truth. A myth about a dragon named Python who uh, sought to, to take out Apollo uh, when he was born. And yet, Apollo was uh, given safety for a time before a, a four-day-old Apollo tracks down the drython, the, the, the drython, python the dragon, and destroys him. And so John is tapping into his audience's familiar, familiarity with that story, but he does so uh, seeking to correct and change the characters in the, in the drama. 
to infuse it with elements of the true story, the biblical story. In short, this is the story of Christmas and Easter wrapped into one. You see, from a makeshift cradle among animals in Bethlehem to his execution on a cross on the hill of Golgotha, to his glorious ascension and crowning by God the Father in heaven, John provides a cosmic lens to gaze upon the story of all stories. From the cradle to the cross to the crown, Christ our Savior is King. And this King has disrupted the devil's plans. You see, the moment God planned to send his Son on a rescue mission to to the world to address the very, the very sin issue that Satan had his hand in encouraging, Satan was doomed. He had and he has no chance because Jesus' resurrection and ascension solidify his defeat. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his ascension uh, to his rightful place in heaven, solidify Satan's defeat. You see the heavenly battle description that's found here between Michael... Uh, And his allies and Satan and his allies recalls uh, some other similar accounts, some of them biblical accounts and some of them extra biblical accounts that have come to be associated with Satan's rebellion and fall. Isaiah chapter 14 is one such instance, a text that originally refers to the fall of the Babylonian king, but has also come to be associated with Satan, the fall of Satan, the rebellion of Satan, the, the puppet master behind that king and every evil king. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You see, church, the Bible is absolutely clear that the devil is real and that he is evil. The Bible says a lot about his efforts to to foil God's plans, to oppose God and oppose the people of God. But the truth is we don't know that much about his fall, when or how it happened. But it seems, I think, as if John describes it here as if to make absolutely clear the connection between Christ's mission and Satan's defeat. In other words, the accomplished mission of the Messiah ensures that the devil is doomed. Verse 7, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. Verse 8, don't miss it, but he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. This is, it's that time of uh, year where there's a lot of college basketball on TV. I don't know if you're into that uh, kind of thing. But uh, if you watch much basketball um, and the game is remotely close at all, then you know the final minute of the game seems to take forever. If there is any chance at all uh, that the team that's behind can possibly miraculously catch up and win the game. They make every effort to do so. They pull out all the stops and the final minute takes a while. Uh, Such was the case uh, in the Arkansas Ole Miss game yesterday. I don't know if you watched that. I bet Jim watched uh, some. Oh, no, Jim didn't even watch any of that game. But it was a nail-biter down to the very end. Of course, I wouldn't mention it this morning. If Arkansas didn't win, we won by one point. All right, but we've all been there. Game takes forever. Back and forth, back and forth. Anybody's game pulling out all the stops equally matched up well church the bible is clear that this battle is not like that at all again and again and again john emphasizes that satan is absolutely no match for god colossians chapter 2 paul declares that christ triumphed over satan and all evil powers by the cross 
Jesus' resurrection and ascension solidify Satan's defeat. But even though he is doomed, he does not give up. Like a wounded animal, he is bent on destruction, attempting to hurt everyone in his path. Friends, the devil strives to deceive and accuse us. The Bible is clear that the, the, the devil strives to deceive and accuse us. Christ's mission is our redemption, but the devil's mission is our destruction. He twists the truth today just as much as he did in the garden. Asking the question, did did God really say? Did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say you, you can't look on, you can't even look at another woman? God really say you, you must obey Everything, you must follow everything written in his, his word. God really say you, you've got to give all your possessions away. Did God really expect you to do everything in the Bible? Didn't he say he'll forgive and forget whatever you do? Didn't he say just, just do the best you can? Didn't God say if you can't stop sinning, maybe, maybe Christ's love isn't for you? Maybe you're just too guilty. Beyond repair. You see, all of these subtle twists of the truth, that's what the devil does. Twist the truth. The devil's a liar and a deceiver, verse 9, who wants to accuse us, verse 10, before God. Remember the story of Job. Job is described in God's word as a righteous man, a man who absolutely loves the Lord, who's devoted to his Lord. And as the story goes, one day uh, the devil uh, appears before before the Lord. And the Lord says to Satan, have you seen Job? There's no one like him in all the earth. He absolutely loves me. Job chapter 1 verse 9, Satan replies, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. In other words, Satan says to God, Job really isn't that good. You've just given him so much. Of course he worships you. Change his circumstances. Take that stuff away and you'll see how bad he really is. The devil is a deceiver and an accuser. John hears a loud voice in heaven for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Verse 10. The devil strives to deceive and accuse us. But friends, Jesus is our sufficient advocate. Jesus is our sufficient advocate. Advocate, Christians, in the high court of heaven, we have a defense counselor who soundly destroys every false accusation and illegitimate claim this crafty yet corrupt prosecuting attorney brings against us. Our Savior is our sufficient advocate, pleading our case before the Most High God. And elsewhere, this same John that wrote Revelation penned these words in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My dear children... I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he also recorded Jesus' words to his disciples about the coming Holy Spirit, described as our counselor, our advocate, John chapter 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, Jesus said, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. See, Satan tries to accuse us, but he has no legal basis to stand on. He has been expelled from heaven, and the Lamb's blood covers all of those who trust in him. Friend, make no mistake about it. The blood of Jesus saves us. 
blood of Jesus saves us. Our salvation rests squarely and solely upon the substitutionary sacrifice of the sinless Son of God. He has done for us what we don't deserve and what we could never ever do on our own. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Once again, John records a loud celebration in heaven, a celebration of that truth. If you're paying attention to Revelation, you see that there are a number of times that there's a loud celebration going on in heaven. One here in verse uh, verse 11, celebrating that believers triumphed over Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So the Bible declares here that the blood of Jesus saves us and our faith in Christ secures us. Our faith in Christ secures us. Now, don't mishear me. It's not our faith that saves us. It's the blood of Jesus alone that cleanses us of sin's guilt before God. But it is our faith in Christ that applies the gift of His salvation to our lives. Again and again, the book of Revelation is consistent with God's Word, making a distinction between those who are people of faith and those who are not. Those who are following the Lord and those who aren't, those who are believers and those who are not. We repent and receive Jesus in faith, trusting His provision for us. And so this provision, this gift of forgiveness through the blood of Christ begs the question this morning, do you believe? Do you believe? Friend, do you really believe the story of God's Word? The story of this book? Do you really believe in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for you? We're not talking about repeating some words or checking a box. We're talking about fully trusting in the provision of Christ on the cross for your eternal salvation. This is more than head knowledge. It is a trust that grips the heart and moves the will. A trust that proves its authenticity by faithfulness to Jesus, even unto death, verse 11. You see, taken seriously... That is the application of revelation. Friends, the portrait here is of martyrdom, of dedication to Christ over Caesar, of clear gospel witness over silence, of submission over self-exaltation, of worship over compromise. Does that describe you? We're not talking about sinlessness here, but we're talking about a trajectory of one's life, a genuine faith in Jesus that changes our allegiances and prods us to passionately follow the Lamb of God and Savior of the world. Do you believe? Do you believe? See, John is absolutely bent on calling his readers to witness to the truth they believe. To share and to show the love of Jesus Christ in a world that most often rejects him and even opposes him. And John is completely committed to that call throughout this book because he knows. Because he knows that God protects and preserves his witnesses as they journey toward heaven. God protects and preserves his witnesses, his people, his church. He protects and preserves his witnesses as they journey toward heaven. You see, one of the roles... If not the primary role, that's probably going too far. A central role of of parents is to protect your children, to provide for your children. While they're under your care for 
some 18 or so years until they're out on their own. Likewise, God is a God who protects and preserves His, His people. While we're in a place, we're in a world, we're in a home that's not our eternal home. We're not moving toward our independence. We're moving to, toward the full realization of His presence. God protects and preserves His witnesses as they journey toward heaven. That's what the final portion of this chapter is about. That's what verses 13 through 17 are about. The dragon pursues the woman, representing the people of God, and does everything he can to take out his anger on her. He knows he is defeated and that his time is short, verse 12. His fate is sealed. And God's people are saved. The devil's aim is to stop the church. Verse 17, to wage war against those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. In other words, those who know Christ, clinging to the truth of the gospel. Those who overcome. Central call and theme throughout Revelation. Those who overcome the temptation to compromise with the world's values and those who maintain allegiance to Christ despite persecution, proving themselves to be followers of the Lamb. See, friends, the church will prevail. We have this assurance, this promise from God's Word. We have a promise spoken by Jesus to Peter upon Peter's confession of truth about the Messiah. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. This comes right on the heels of of Peter acknowledging who, who Jesus is. He says, you are the Messiah. You're, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus responds. He says, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus was saying that his church would be established. And friends, his church has been established for nearly 2,000 years all across this globe. And despite Satan's opposition and deception, the church will press on. The church will press on reaching the nations of the world until Jesus comes again. But in the meantime, we have an enemy. In the meantime, our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. But as is often the case, he's a poor imitation of the true lion of the tribe of Judah who has triumphed and who is standing at the center of the heavenly throne. Revelation chapter 5. See, once again, John expects his readers to know the Scriptures. Are you reading the Scriptures? Are you spending time, believer, in the Word of God? Are you taking in the Word? Are you taking in God's provision for us? He expects his readers to know the Scriptures. John uses imagery and language here, once again, to recall the Exodus experience. Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of. That's not a reference to uh, War Eagle or the Auburn Tigers. That, that's a reference that's recalling God's words to His people after He delivered them from bondage in Egypt. Do, uh, Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, He says, uh, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Also, Uh, Recalling God's promise of restoration and preservation for His people during the exile. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So why the illusions? Why the illusion? 
was Pharaoh attempted to eliminate God's people by throwing them in the Nile? Remember that story? Pharaoh attempted to eliminate God's people by throwing them in the river. So Satan aims to drown out followers of the Lamb. And as God delivered Moses from the water, he will deliver his people from the devil's attacks. As the flood of the Red Sea dried up for God's people before turning itself upon the Egyptian army, so Satan's instruments of attack ultimately will be his own undoing. And as God provided nourishment for the Israelites wandering through the wilderness toward the promised land. So God will provide the nourishment of his word and the provision of his presence for his church wandering in this earthly wilderness toward our heavenly home, toward our promised land. You see, God protects and preserves his witnesses as they journey toward heaven. And as we noted last week, this is not a promise of the removal of suffering here in this life, but a promise of ultimate refuge and of ultimate victory in Jesus Christ. Though Satan aims to destroy us, Christ has defeated him and will soon deliver us. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us in the here and now? As people living in what some have called the already not yet of Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom has come, but it's not fully realized. We're awaiting the return of the king. It means that you heed the warning of God's word and build your life on the rock. Build your life on the rock but your life on knowing Jesus. He is the rock. He is the one who said in Matthew chapter 7, he said, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. Is your foundation on the rock? But in contrast, he says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You see, those who build their house on the rock are those who hear and obey the words of Christ. They are those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. But in contrast... In contrast, Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, the the dragon stood on the shore with the sand of the sea. The shifting foundation of opposing Christ. Friend, build your life on the rock, the firm foundation of Jesus Christ our Lord. As we draw this to a conclusion, let me invite you to turn with me in the Bible to New Testament letter to the Philippians. Back a few pages, 50 or so pages to a letter written to the Philippian church, and we'll conclude there. I want you to look at this text with me, Philippians chapter 1. But the author of that letter, the author of this letter, the author of Philippians, uh, once violently opposed Jesus and the way of the gospel. But once his eyes were opened to the truth of God's plan of salvation, he built his life on the solid rock of knowing and serving Jesus. Let's listen to his words, Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 and following, in the words of the imprisoned Paul, he said, I eagerly and expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. 
words, if I, I go on living, if the Lord lets me continue living here in this life despite any opposition, I'm going to keep serving him. And he's going to use me for whatever purposes he desires. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know, he says. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, he says, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. See, like John, Paul, and the entire first century audience of the book of Revelation knew what it was meant, knew what it was like to face uh, opposition for claiming the lordship of Jesus Christ. And even so, Paul clung tightly to the truth. John clung tightly to the truth. And they urged their listeners to, to cling tightly to the truth of God's word. They prayed for sufficient courage to go on declaring the gospel of Jesus. Paul built his life upon the rock. And because he did so, he couldn't wait to be with Jesus. Can you wait to be with Jesus? You see, those who know The one who went from the cradle to the cross to the crown, defeating Satan and delivering sinners, longed to be with Jesus. Friend, do you long to be with Jesus? If you truly know him, you will. You long to be with him. Settle down here for a while. Invite him. Ask him to use you and whatever way and for whatever length of time he sees fit, but ultimately you're going to want to be with him. You're going to want to be with him because Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, Christ has defeated Satan and he will soon deliver us. Father, we believe the truths of your word. But we trust in you. Pray that you would guide the days of our lives, Lord, that you would give us sufficient courage to follow after you and to build our lives upon the truth of of the gospel. Father, we thank you that you are victorious and that your plan is good and that you are working out your plan of redemption in your perfect timing. And Father, we thank you for victory in Jesus Christ. Father, may we live our lives serving him. May we live our lives worshiping you for you are worthy. Lord, may we trust you even in the midst of what appear to be uncertain days or uncertain seasons in our lives. Lord, may we cling to the truths of your word. May we find comfort and assurance and guidance from you. Believe in you always. Lord, where we're in doubt, give us faith to believe. May we trust you and live for you. And worship Christ until he comes again. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.